So we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 of chapter 7 tonight. I'd like to read them aloud, and then we'll pray. Paul, writing to a church in Corinth in the first century, says in chapter 7, verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at one time, at the time of his call, already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Father, I think it's understood for any of us who identify as Christians, who recognize that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, that we want to live a life that is pleasing to you, that we want to do your will, that we want to glorify you. And we look around at our life, and sometimes there's a lot of frustration there. We feel trapped. We feel like the distance to accomplish that is so far away. And so I pray, Lord, for a recalibration of expectation tonight that we would not make the mistake of the Corinthian church of grafting in so much of our culture around us that we can't see the radicalness of the gospel. And on the other hand, ironically, that we would be comfortable in the culture we find ourselves in because that's exactly where God has placed us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Did you catch the repeated refrain? Each time he says it, he brings out a slightly different nuance The reason he says it three times is not just to drill it into our heads, but to shape it out more broadly. But nonetheless, the principle is pretty simply stated all three times. We can see it in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Then it's repeated in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition which he was called. And then finally in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. It would be hard to miss the principle tonight. But Paul illustrates it here and repeats it because it's a lot harder to apply it, to really get it, to press it into our hearts and live as if these things were so than it is just to be able to, you know, write it at the end of a test, uh, than to be able just to uh, regurgitate it when requested. But ultimately what he says here is that God has plans for your life and they're not over their plans and they're not with those people plans and they're not miles apart from where you start plans. If anything, what Paul wants us to recognize is when we became Christians, the Christian life begins right there, not somewhere else. Now that's more important than it sounds. Here's the thing. Paul puts or points this principle in three different areas, and it's broad enough, I had a hard time personally thinking of another area. 
Like, he, he sets up the section so well, you may be able to think of other areas that this principle would also apply, but these three are big enough that it covers a good deal of ground. Okay, the first one, remember the passage that we're reading here, he's already applied this principle to human relationships. And so he said, let each person continue in the relationships that they were when they were called. If you were single, don't make a big deal about it. If you're married, stay married. If you're remarried, that's where it starts. If you're divorced, that's where it is. All of those pieces um, are what he's been talking about. But the principle is, is relational, right? It's being applied relationally that somehow when you were called, God's plan begins there with your marital status. And we'll talk about this in just a minute, but you should also broaden that out to your family status, okay? So to bring it back to that word vocation, the first thing we see tonight is that vocation includes the fact that many of you are brothers or sisters or sons or daughters or fathers or mothers or spouses. That's part of this idea of vocation, which we'll draw out in a second. The second category can feel a little bit distanced because it deals with circumcision and uncircumcision. And not only is that an awkward topic of conversation, it also feels like an irrelevant one. If you read the New Testament, it's pretty clear that this was a major issue in the first century church because the church began in Judaism and then went beyond Judaism. The question of, do I need to be Jewish to become a Christian was a major one, okay? Not to mention the fact that this was a major part of the Old Testament requirements for the people of God. And so asking, is it still applicable today, was a big thing. So he deals with that issue, but what I want you to notice underlying it is two also important things, okay? Oh, specifically this. One, um, what we'll call religious externalities, religious symbolism. That's what circumcision was, right? It wasn't just one of the things you had to do to be Jewish. It was a mark of your Jewishness, right? It wasn't even what made you an Israelite. It's something you did because you were one, okay? In the same way that putting a ring on your finger doesn't make you married, but if you're married, you probably have one, okay? Not only that, but it's also cultural, okay? Jewish or Gentile is not just a religious issue, it's a cultural one. And that's very much overlapping on this issue. We're going to disconnect it solely because your culture is part of your vocation, okay? Who you are, where you come from, what language you speak. And even though we don't deal with the circumcision, uncircumcision issue, the status that comes with culture and what it looks like to be a Christian culturally is a major issue for us to address. And then the final illustration he gives um, deals with slavery and with freedmen's, okay? Now, notice it doesn't say, if you look very closely there, if you have a good English translation of verse 22, a freeman, a freedman is what it says, okay? The idea is a slave that's been set free. That's where the distinction is. But the reason why I'm drawing that out is because ultimately this area is about two parts of your life. I'm recognizing tonight that probably no one in this room is a slave, right? In not just the American sense of the word, but the first century Roman sense of the word that we'll unpack later, that this may seem irrelevant, but I want you to recognize that what, what's really being talked about is work. And he takes an extreme example of work. Like, if you want to talk about gratifying, pur uh, purposeful, and divinely given work, slavery is probably the 
the lowest on your list, right? And that's where Paul starts. So it's still valuable for us because if Paul's words apply to slavery, they apply to fry cooks and everyone else, right? And then I want you to also recognize that the major issue in slavery in the first century is not just do you belong to yourself, but also one of status. And so once again, we find underlying this, not just what you do for a living, but the status that comes with that. And there's a religion, religious version of that. Are you a missionary? Are you a pastor? Or do you just have a job to pay the bills, right? And there's also a secular version of that. Are you a janitor or a doctor, right? Are you a lawyer and you get the status that comes with that and you buy all of the marks of that status, you know, to reflect that? Or are you, you know, a trash collector and do you bear all that, right? Those issues are involved here. But what I want you to notice is This idea of vocation, once again, is very broad. It talks about the relationships, humanly, you are in when you become a Christian. It talks about the work that you are doing with your life as a Christian. And it talks about the culture that you are from, which, by the way, is is inherently broad in itself, right? The way that you dress, the art that you consume, the, uh, you know, language that you speak, the traditions that you hold, all of those things. And Paul's big message tonight is there's intentionality in that, okay? That God saved you in the relationships you're in, in the culture that you're in, in the employment and whatever status comes with it that you're in, and you can start the Christian life right there, okay? Now, here's here's where we have to begin. In verse 17 here, Paul does something that's easy to miss. I'll show you what it is. Read it with me again. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and that which God has called him. I want to draw your attention to those two words, called and assigned. Okay. Now, for the large majority of the usage of both of these words, it has tremendously spiritual connotations. Usually, when the Bible uses the word called, especially in the New Testament, it's referencing the fact that God has sovereignly and miraculously brought people to himself. Okay? What's sometimes called election. The idea here is that when you were saved, it's because God called you. And so it's this massive, miraculous, religious happening. But here, as you read through the passage, although you could read that at first as being what he's talking about, Pretty soon it's clear that calling for Paul includes who your uncle is. Calling for Paul includes the employment you were doing when you were saved and whatever employment you do from here on out. That calling includes the culture that you come from. Okay. And so in one sense, Paul back in chapter 1, verse, verse 26 can say, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to your worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is the foolish of the world to shame the wise. God chose what's the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to to bring to nothing the things that are. And so here he says, God's calling was despite your status. You weren't high. You weren't respectable, you weren't wealthy, you didn't have any of these things, and yet God chose to save you. But now Paul takes it further and he says, in fact, 
those aspects are part of your vocation, part of your calling. You see, there's this danger in the modern world, and I don't think it's necessarily a modern danger, but it is a danger to us in the modern world, of a over-division between sacred and secular. We do it in all sorts of areas, and so we have sacred events, like a church service. And then we have secular events, like when you go to your nine-to-five, when you brush your teeth in the morning, right? We keep distinct, and so there's holy and religious parts of our life, and then there's the rest of life. Uh, We do the same thing, as I mentioned, with the way that we think about work. And so there's work that's just for the sake of paying the bills, and then there's religious work. We're constantly dividing these things, and what Paul does is he grabs all of the ropes and pulls them in and says, no, 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 it's all sacred. It's all according to the plan. If you want to know what is God's will for my life, and you just answer it with go to church or give money to missions, and everything else is just the margins of your life, which also usually ends up being the larger portion, then you've misunderstood not only the God of the Bible, but also what God's trying to do in the gospel. It's holistic. It's complete. It touches everything. And we see that reflected in this word calling. Effectively, what Paul is going to say is in these areas, even if God moves you on to other things, because we'll see that, he recognizes that sometimes things change. What he's not saying here is, if you're a slave, it's your destiny, so just fulfill it. He clearly says here, if freedom's an option, take it with both hands, right? He said to the married and to the singles, he recognizes the same things. He says, it's not always possible to remain married because another person in your relationship makes their own decisions. And so he deals with those. He says, if you're single right now, you should consider that, but it's okay if you get married, right? So there's options for change. What I want to emphasize tonight is not your permanent calling, but your starting calling, okay? Not the fact that your vocation in these senses or your work should remain the same the rest of your life, but that work being used for God happens now with this job right here in these relationships, with this family, with this spouse, that's where it begins, even if it will take you somewhere else. The second word he uses is also interesting in verse 17. It's translated as assigned. Sometimes it's translated distributed. Now what's interesting is in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses this word specifically, and what he says is that God has distributed to each Christian spiritual gifts, and then he lists them. So there's teaching and exhortation, there's gifts of mercy, there's speaking in tongues and doing miracles and healings. There's a variety of ways that God has miraculously equipped his church to do ministry. Here he takes that same word and he says, I'm also talking about the job you have. I'm also talking about the family you have. I'm also talking about the culture you come from. He uses that same word for distribution and says, God's involved here too. He has a plan right here. Now, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to get this is because conversion, in fact, let's just stop and make an aside. When we're asking ourselves, what does it look like to please God? When we're talking about doing God's will, you have to begin with the fact that these people are already saved, right? If you forget that tonight and you think, okay, the way I go about pleasing God is right in front of me, you're missing the major portion of the Bible that says, no, actually, if you want to know what pleases God, it's not you. It's Jesus. It's the life that he lived that you could not in your place. It's the death that you deserved that he died in your place. And on that behalf, now God is pleased with you. 
not because of your work and not because of your promise to do good work from this point out, but because of the work of another. That has to be understood first, okay? You cannot understand your calling that God has for you until you understand that he called you in Jesus Christ, took care of it. That's where it begins. But once it's there, here's the reason why this goes sideways so quickly. It's because oftentimes we see radical change and even lines in the sand in the ministry of Jesus that look very different than what I'm going to talk about tonight. It doesn't sound like remain where you are. It sounds like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. It looks like the disciples who are clearly fishermen and he says, not anymore, you come with me, right? That reality is there. But the problem is we miss the places where that's missing. I'll give you an example. Um, Jesus, in one occasion, hears, uh, heals a man who's so demonically possessed that the problem of his life takes a couple of sentences to tell. This is a guy who lives in a cemetery, is constantly cutting himself. Nobody can go around him because he's so dangerous. Anytime they've tried to chain him up for his safety and for others, he's broken the chains like the Hulk. Uh, you know, this, is, this reality is going on. And what happens is Jesus so drastically changes this guy's life that people come out and they find this man of tremendous reputation, right? The crypt dweller, that guy, sitting in his right mind just listening to Jesus talk. They're so disturbed by this transformation, they ask Jesus to leave the county. They just say, hey, just will you please leave? What happens next, though, is so interesting. Because this man, whose life has been so drastically changed by the only one who had the power and the compassion to change him, says to Jesus, wherever you go, I want to go there. And Jesus says no. And what he says is so interesting. He doesn't say, no, go get a seminary degree first, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to send you out to this tribe of people on the other side of the earth. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, go home, go back to your family, go back to your neighbors and tell them of the good things that God has done, okay? Listen, one of the reasons we get this wrong is because we still think of God's mission or the front line of Christianity or what God's will for your life as being way over there somewhere distant, and a lot of times you just have to go home. Secondly, secondly, a reason why we get this wrong is because we forget Corinthians 1.26. And so we know that when God called us, we weren't where we should be. We weren't doing, you know, there was no status, no, nothing to make us attractive or appealing, and yet he died for us anyway. And then we enter the church with a bunch of people who struggle with status just like us, and it gets a lot harder. Because even when we don't, and we do, even when we don't elevate particular vocations as being better and ultimate and good, we reflect that by the way we talk about things and by the things that we don't talk about, right? We very rarely talk about God's will for the fry cook. We very rarely talk about what, you know, what evangelism looks like with your sisters and your brothers and that your house is your mission field, right? These things don't always enter into our language and the reality of culture, which deals heavily with vocation, is not just if you're not careful you'll have a culture, it's you do. The place where you have to take care is to be actually able to see it because we just take it for granted. And so we just assume 
of course these things are normal, and, or of course these things are righteous, or of course these things are Christian because this is what we do, right? And all, all the while, we have, to, we have to be able to regain the reality that even if God's going to take you elsewhere, that obedience, faithfulness, pleasing God is always a present tense phenomenon. It starts where you are right now. It starts where you are right here. Okay? That's what Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to consider, and that's what we need to consider. Let's look at relationship first. Okay? The recognition here is that we have a tendency to take particular uh, relationship statuses. In fact, don't we use the word status? If you're filling out an application and it wants to know your marriage status, single, divorced, married, etc., right? there is this other element of status that always comes into it. And so there's this tendency to, for example, elevate marriage to the degree that you're not really an adult if you're not married. And so we see all of singleness is preemptive to that at very best. And so we constantly want to know when their life is really going to begin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Life for a Christian began when you received Jesus and it happens right now as a single person. In fact, next week he's going to take that much further and he's going to say that's a tremendously advantaged position. That, that your opportunities are much more broad and the way that you can serve the Lord, there's all sorts of reasons to be happy about singleness. Okay. In the same way, in the same way, this happens within marriage. Here, here let, me, let me draw this out in a way that we can all understand. Oftentimes we find ourselves thinking, I know the Bible calls me to this type of relationship or to obey my parents or to, um, you know, not exacerbate my children like it commands fathers to do. And that'd be so much easier if it wasn't these parents if it wasn't this child. So often we take our behavior in life and we root it entirely in our circumstances. We say, that person just brings the worst out of me, right? Which leaves ourself completely off the hook and off the table. You just make me so mad, right? Or we think, you know, the, the vision of what the Bible embodies for family, I just, it's not going to happen here, not with these people. There are those who think, I would be a better Christian if it weren't for my spouse, right? Or if my parents had done a better job bringing me up or a thousand other places. One of the things you have to recognize tonight is that Paul says, the family that you have, that's where God has given you to do his will. And it's a sufficient place to begin. Here's how this played out in my life. The joys of family for me were a discovery. They weren't part of the plan. At best, what I wanted out of my life, I would call the married bachelor life. I wanted the perks of marriage, but I didn't really think that I needed a spouse, except in the uh, Neil Young sense of a man needs a maid. Like, I know I can't take care of myself, and I needed that. And I discovered in, in marriage all of these things that I needed that I didn't know I needed, right? The value of relationship. And then we started having kids, and... I mean, I have five children. I was anticipating two max. Do you know why we have so many kids? It's not because we don't know how this works. We do, I promise. We're well-practiced. Uh, it's, it's because we love having kids. And in a sense, it's, it's hard to stop because of the joys and these things. But all of that was unforeseen. And as soon as I started to see them, 
I started to hold up this ideal of what family would look like for the rest of my life. I watched shows like Parenthood and I looked at this and I went, that's it. I want to be the patriarch in the good sense of the word, right? Where we all gather around the table and even when we've got our problems and our difficulties, we are family. And I loved that idea. And then I looked at my, my own family, my relationship with my sisters and with my parents, which by the way is not their fault, is very much my own problem. And I saw all the distance in that and I was like, I guess I just have to wait until my, you know, my kids grow up. I started to think to myself, well, that's a great ideal, but it's never going to happen here. And so I aspired to verbally this thing and then sat on my butt and took no steps towards it in the reality of my life. Recently, I've become very convicted about that. I've recognized that God gave me a father and a mother and two sisters that, that can be a family. That's why God gave them to me. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, nothing we're going to read tonight implies easy. When Paul says, you can serve God as a slave, he's not saying, it's easy, right? It's incredibly difficult. When he meets you where you're at in your work tonight and says, here, you can be a witness. Here, you can do God's will. Here, you can serve humanity and not just yourself. For some of us, the professions seem very difficult to do that in. Right? The idolatry and the distractions and the temptations seem to make that very hard. It's hard, but the reality here is that God can use you there and intends to. And it's the same with your family. Okay? The family that you have. The relationships that you have, and in a sense, the relationships that you don't have. We'll unpack that a bit more next week, so let's move on to the next illustration. The first thing I want you to recognize when you say, what is God's will for my life? For some of you, it's to be a Christian brother, or a Christian son, or a Christian wife, or a Christian mother, okay? That's God's calling, and he views it very highly, as in it's according to the plan. It builds his kingdom. It's the intention. It's your mission field, all of those things, as well as the status of those things is set aside, okay? So it's not motherhood is the greatest and, you know, or marriage is high and single, or on the other hand, single brings the freedom to really serve God, to hit the mission field. We've got to watch out for status here. Paul wants us to recognize here that status, I mean, when he uses the word to assign here, for me, that makes me think of military terms. how are you judged when you're in the army? By how a general would have done his job? No, it's assignment-based, right? How did you do on the mission you were given? You're not going to be judged against the married or the single or those who grew up without a father or those who did. The reality is, here's where God has given you your assignment. Okay, now... Let's look at the second one. Once again, it deals with circumcision. He says in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, you have to recognize how big of a deal this was in the first century. Jesus, when he's speaking to the woman in Samaria in John chapter four, says something very particular. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is of or from the Jews, okay? Jesus was Jewish. The 12 disciples that he chose were Jewish. 
The 120 that were filled in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost were Jewish. And the entire Christian church was Jewish for the first few years. Then it started to spread beyond the boundaries of Israel. And the difficulties in this transition are so major that the book of Acts spends a lot of time talking about just this issue. The one that we could label circumcision and uncircumcision. The book of Galatians is written specifically to deal with this issue. It comes up over and over again throughout the New Testament. The first church council where they go, okay, we have to come together and make a decision is on this issue. Do, specifically, Gentile believers need to first become Jewish and therefore be circumcised and keep the law of Moses before they can receive a Jewish Messiah. And the answer that the Jerusalem church comes to, the answer that Paul comes to, the answer that's relatively clear when you really make a broad study on what circumcision was and how Jesus fulfilled the law and these types of things is no. Gentiles come as Gentiles directly to Jesus. And so what he says here is, if you came as a Jew, don't seek to be uncircumcised. And there's a status and a cultural side to this that you should understand, okay? In Corinth, in the first century, because it was Rome, there was a good deal of same-gender nudity that was just a part of life. Bathhouses and, you know, the restrooms, if you've ever gone and seen an archaeological dig, were basically outdoor and no stalls, you know. Uh, the Olympics were, were originally done in the nude, all of these things. And so, if you're the Jewish guy, it's going to be known pretty quickly, Circumcision was not a common thing. It wasn't done for medical reasons. It was very noticeable. And Jews were not necessarily liked in Rome. In fact, the emperor around this time kicked all the Jews out of the Roman capital, the city of Rome, uh, because they were troublemakers. And so there were Jews at this time who were trying to adapt to Gentile, specifically Greek culture, who actually came up with surgeries to reverse this or to make it less visible. This is a thing. On top of that, there were those in the church who were still demanding that Gentiles be circumcised. Okay? And what Paul says is, if you came as a Jew, don't seek to erase the marks of that. If you came as a Gentile, don't, don't seek to add them. And notice what he says. What's his reason? Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. What does he say? He says it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to God. It doesn't bring any value. It doesn't gain you any status or earn you any brownie points with God. He's never going to look at your life and go, boy, you did a lot of good things, but I wish you had been circumcised, right? That's clearly what's going on here. Now, here's where it applies to us. Circumcision, as I mentioned, was not just a way to obey God with all the other ways. Uh, other ways. It was a symbol of that relationship with God. We too have religious symbols. We too uh, often invest lots of value and importance and gauge lots of people by external religious symbols. Okay? They're different than circumcision because not a single one of them is prescribed by scripture in any sense, but they are there. Okay? Now, before I start and talk about the ones in our world, let me just give you one other illustration. When Israel moves into the land that God has promised them, two and a half of the 12 tribes decide to settle outside of the promised land proper, across the river, um, in, in the land there. And so there's this barrier between them, between the 10 tribes and the two and a half tribes over here. 
and they recognized the danger of that being that eventually Israel could go, you're not really Israel. If you were, you'd be in the promised land with us, right? You're not really Jewish. You're the over there people. You're just pretending. And so what they do is they build an altar, okay? Effectively, just a pile of rocks. They set it up, and Israel is freaking out. The other 10 tribes, you know, come together and have a war council and go, man, Two weeks. It's been two weeks, and they're already drifting away from God and building a second altar, right? Even though God required all worship to happen wherever the tabernacle was. And so they gather their armies, they surround the two and a half tribes, and they basically say, repent or die, because they're zealous about doing this right. And they explain, and they go, no, 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 no. No, we have no intentions of using this altar. We just wanted it to be a reminder, because when our kids have kids who have kids... You're going to not see them as Jewish, and we wanted here to be a mark, a reminder. Now, the reason why this is ironic is because the Jewish life, according to the Old Testament, is pretty clear, right? It's pretty easy to tell a Jew versus a non-Jew in Old Testament times, right? There's kosher law and what you are and are not allowed to, to wear, and there's all of these parts of the ritual law and all these things, not to mention showing up in Jerusalem That wasn't really a risk, but they felt the need to have some sort of an external marker that would absolve them from that, right? Is it really that different? Is it really that different than the crosses we wrap around our neck or our WWJD bracelet? Is it really that different than all of these external manifestations that we tend to Christianize in the sense of we say, this is what it looks like to be a Christian? This is what you must do or must not do? right? He says here, once again, that none of those things, none of those things validate you before the Lord. None of us are going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, you know, you lived a really good life, but I can't believe you never went out and spent just the few dollars to buy a cross. He's never going to say, couldn't you love me enough to be a good witness by wearing a WWJD bracelet so people would ask about it? That's not where it's at. That's not how the Christian life is truly shown, not to mention it's very easily faked, is it not? In fact, that's often what externals do. They allow us to maintain an external reality. That's why Jesus criticized the Pharisees of being clean on the outside and totally dirty on the inside. They looked like good law keepers, but it was just looks. He says, but rather obedience, but rather keeping the commandments of God. Now remember, this isn't just about religious externals, which is something we have to be careful about. It's inherently about culture. And here's the thing. We have a tendency to develop a Christian culture, which I'm going to tell you right now is not a thing. See, here's one of the ways that Islam differs greatly from Christianity. Islam looks basically the same anywhere. Right? It's relatively recognizable. It is a culture that wherever it is, is formed and visible and the same. Why is Christianity not that way? Why would it feel so awkward for you to be in an African church or a Chinese church? You know, when we talk about the Coptic Christians who are being you know, driven out of their country and killed, have you ever seen a Coptic Christian? How much would you have in common with your Christianity? And we do this. We elevate our culture because it's the only culture we know. We're like fishes swimming in water going, what's water, right? We just assume that this is everybody's reality, and then we make it right or wrong. Then we make it good or bad. 
we can go back a few generations and see this pretty easily, right? You've got tattoos, you get radically saved, and now at the very least you've got to get them covered up because it's not appropriate for a Christian to be tattooed. Now we're almost on the other end where you walk into some churches and you feel like, man, I'm not hip enough to be a Christian. And what he says here is, as you came in, is fine. It's the same, listen, it's the same with race and all of the culture that comes with race. When the church started to go out into the world in the great revival that starts with William Carey and started to carry the message of Christianity, they also brought the standards of Western culture. And they had a tendency to overlap the two and basically see Christianity being behaving like an Englishman. Right? That's not the way that the New Testament sees this going out. The culture differences between the churches that we see across the New Testament are very broad. And the principle here is stay the culture you are. Speak the language you speak. The Quran is only the Quran in the original language. The Bible has always been translated into every language because we recognize it can be enculturated, that it can shift through those things. Okay. Now here's the struggle for us. Very rarely do we say, this is our culture and we like it, be like us. Instead, what we do is we manifest our culture in such a way that it sends that signal anyway. Okay. Anytime I would ask any of you, do you need to do this to be a Christian? Whatever is on the list, for the most part, you're going to say no. But it doesn't change the fact that that's often the signal we send. Now, I want to make a clarification here. Paul, just a few chapters later, is going to say, I'm going to behave in whatever culture I'm trying to reach. I'm going to become like all men so that I might win some. And that is completely appropriate, right? When in Rome, do as the Romans is a Christian principle because Jesus became a Jew. He incarnated to make himself accessible, understandable, right? Christians should translate themselves just like we translate the scriptures to the people we're trying to reach. And that's true. The danger is the opposite expectation, that we exclude those who don't become like us, that we have standards that we require that prove that you're a real Christian or a good Christian or the right kind of Christian, that are merely and completely cultural and external. We do this when somebody comes in who comes from a culture that is more exuberant in their worship and we send a signal that basically says, you know, we're a little bit more reserved than that here if you just calm down a little bit. We do it when we make all sorts of unnatural barriers for entry and it happens on both sides, right? And so we have suit-wearing Christians over here who condemn hipster Christians and the other happens as well, right? Either of them elevates it and says, no, this is what it looks like. We have to watch out for that. I had a pastor once who was complaining about cool churches. And he just said, why do those pastors have to put on skinny jeans? You know, what are they trying to prove? Why do they have to be fashionable? And I said, to be honest, I think some people do it for the wrong reasons, the exact wrong reasons that we're talking about too. here. I said, but have you left any room for those who get saved wearing skinny jeans? Right? Who that's where they start. And so they're just being themselves. See, this is the difference. This is the nuance. Now, the real application I want to make for you tonight is not don't be so against other cultures. It's recognize that your own culture is where you start. Okay? 
And be very slow in leaving that stuff at the door. Be very slow at thinking, I have to be more like these people to be a Christian, to be acceptable before God, to be the right type of Christian. I know that the church, like every other organization or institution, has elevated racial matters and said, you need to at least behave like a white person if you can't look like one. It happens. Of course it happens. But it shouldn't. The reality should be very different than that. The church should get more and more difficult to maintain in its unity because it's more and more diverse. Because that's the way it was designed. And the reality is, when we get to heaven, we won't all speak English. If you've read the book of Revelation, it says clearly it will be every tribe and every tongue praising the name of Jesus. Okay? Diversity. It's good. And the most important thing here is that culture, he sees, even though it can be a danger, even though it can be a distraction, even though it can be a benefit, like Paul said, I'm going to take advantage of, of, of culture to reach people, right? He quotes pagan poets because he knows that pagans read them. That reality is all true. Nonetheless, nonetheless, we have to recognize here culture is inherently neutral. That when we play the status games of, um, you know, being highbrow in our culture because that's what real Christianity looks like or lowbrow, we're, we're completely missing the reality of what's going on. It's neutral. Instead, he says, be obedient. Okay. Let's look at the last one here. He says in verse 21, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now there's an important difference there. Did you catch it? He doesn't say don't seek to not be a slave like he did with uncircumcision. He doesn't say, don't, don't try and change this. He says, don't be concerned about it. Can you recognize why this would be the case? Recognize first and foremost that a major leading into first century slavery in the Roman Empire was failure financially. Okay? There was no declaring bankruptcy. You had nothing to sell, nothing left to pay your prices. You sold yourself. Okay? Now imagine becoming a Christian in that state and recognizing that God wants to make use of you and now you're completely chained to your job, maybe even quite literally. Can you understand, can you resonate with the feeling that would say, oh, if only, right? I'll, I'll give you one modern version of this that I was thinking about. Imagine you become a Christian and you never finished high school. Isn't it easy to see that as a limitation? To say, you know, I could do, I could serve the Lord if I had finished high school, right? He says, don't be concerned about it. Does it mean you should never go back to school? If you get the opportunity, by all means, of course. If you're a slave and you get the opportunity to be free, if you can buy your way out of slavery, which, by the way, is one of the differences between the slavery here and the slavery in American history, you earned money as a slave, and if you saved up enough, although it was expensive, you could buy yourself, you could redeem yourself out of slavery, um, he says, by all means, do it. The issue here is don't feel like you're locked out of a real Christian life because of these things you can't change, because of these things you have no control of. And a place that this plays out once again is in this massive divide between how we view, view work. And so it works out a couple of different ways. We think, oh, you know, I could be a much greater witness for the Lord or a much better Christian or I could do God's will if I was anything more than a fry cook 
Paul says, no, right there, right there, that's where calling begins. Or sometimes it's like, oh, I can't believe I'm in politics. It's such an embarrassing thing to be as a Christian, such a waste of effort, so built on corruption, whatever it is. Or, you know, we, we do this so many ways. Or, or maybe you're a professor in an incredibly liberal university and you recognize that everybody on staff and the whole trajectory of the school that you're a part of is against what you now believe and you think, oh man, I've got to quit and get out of here. No, 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 no. What Paul's saying here is that that's where God has you and can use you right now. The reality is Christians don't need to get out of politics. We greatly need Christian politicians. Take tax collectors as an example. Okay? In the first century world, they were despised and they almost by nature took that job so that they could take advantage of people. That was their goal in life. When Matthew becomes a tax collector, actually, let me wind back further to a better example. When tax collectors come to John the Baptist and say, what do we need to do? How do we set things right? What does repentance look like for us? He doesn't say quit your job. He says, don't take advantage of people. Here's the reality. There will always be a tax collector. How much better an obedient to the Lord tax collector? There will always be liberal universities. How much better if there's a voice for Christianity right there in that midst. I would encourage you if you get the chance to read the, bem- uh, the memoir from Rosaria Butterfield who was a, uh, a feminist and lesbian studies uh, uh, educator for Syracuse University who had tenure and then was radically saved. She had tenure. She couldn't be fired, and so she tried to answer the question, what does it look like for me to be a Christian here? And it's a compelling read. It's very interesting. I'd encourage you to read it. Um, But here's another area where this breaks down. Sometimes there's areas that come with tremendous temptation, right? And so you work in finance, and your whole life and your whole organization has been devoted to the God mammon, devoted to greed, devoted to these things, and now you recognize you can't devote your life in that way, but the temptations are going to be hardcore. They're going to be super strong, right? It's not, once again, the issue here is you can never quit your job if you're going to be a Christian, or even you're a bad witness or you do. It's the converse of that. It's you can be a Christian here. You can be a witness here. You can honor God here. He can use you here. No matter what your job is, can you really pit it up against slavery as being worse off? Right? Paul's illustration is so helpful here because he says, even the slave can be used by God in the midst of his slavery. This is something that I think is unique about the God of the Bible. He cares about slave masters enough to not leave them without a witness. It's a wild idea. It's almost an offensive idea, isn't it? But that is the gospel message itself, that Christ came to save sinners. You may have the most wicked of spouses, and Paul says, don't be quick to walk away from that. Don't consider divorce as your only option because you're a Christian and you can't be connected to this wicked person. He says, how do you know if you won't save that spouse? Maybe that's exactly what God's plan is. That woman I mentioned in John chapter 4, Through her ministry, the entire city of Samaria comes 
to understand that Jesus is the Messiah? Is she the one you would have picked as your first contact starting your church in Samaria? Would you have gone, you know what, I really need a woman who, who has a reputation for looseness and has married a few times and given up on marriage and is just living with a guy. Is that really where you would have started? And where does she go? She doesn't go, oh man, there is no way I can reach these people. They know my t- story too well. She goes to the men. Men who know that she's loose and probably have taken advantage of it in the past or hope to in the future. And she says, you've got to come meet this man. And the whole city responds. We've got to be more open to the reality. What I'm telling you is, wherever you were when you got saved and wherever you are today, God can and intends to use you there. And he may move you on tomorrow, but today is today and tomorrow's tomorrow. Now, notice what he says here. Instead of saying, like he did with circumcision, doesn't count for anything. Listen to the different way that he handles the status we have in work. Listen to what he says. He says, For he was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. Do you see what he does here? He takes the status realities and he completely flips it around. And he says, there's no room for boasting here because all of us are both this. This is important, okay? This is not a reversal in the sense that, like reverse karma, where the poor are going to become rich in the kingdom and the rich are going to become poor and the high become low and the low become high. This is not that. It's the recognition that the richest person doesn't have enough to redeem themselves. So they might as well be poor. And that the poorest person who has Jesus Christ has tremendous riches. And so here he says the same thing. He says, all of us, all of us were slaves in sin. And so have experienced what it's like to be set free of sin. Have no boasting that can say, I'm a man of myself. No, you are captured by these sinful patterns, by your own rebellion. You find yourself like Paul going, the things that I want to do, that's not what I do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I practice. We recognize that we're enslaved and that we need help, that we can't be good enough. Not just that we haven't been good enough, that we can't be good enough. And Jesus saves us. And so he says, listen, all of you, all of you have been set free. All of you are now slaves. See, because that's the other reality of Christianity is that Jesus has bought us with a price. He's made us his own. We're no longer our own person, and that's everybody's reality. But when it comes to status, free or slave, the answer for Christians is yes. Rich or poor, the answer for Christians is yes. He deletes this man-made assessment of the good life and the bad life, the high and the low, because as it says in the book of Isaiah, all the mountains are leveled and all the valleys are raised when the king comes. And so it changes the way we view status. Notice how he finishes in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Do you see the added nuance there? This is the only time that he puts it this way. Stay there with God. See, here's the thing. When when we as Christians ask, what does it look like to obey God, to follow God, to serve God, to glorify God, to please God, and we put it over there, what we're effectively saying is, I have to go where God is. I have to do the jobs that God cares about, the jobs that God's involved in. 
You see, vocation recognizes the fact that when we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread, bread doesn't just appear out of the void and drop in our lap. Have you ever thought about how many people are involved in the answering of that prayer? Martin Luther called this reality the masks of God, that God's provision happens through the hands of mankind. And so there's farmers who work that soil and get that grain, and there's the miller who mills that grain, and then there's the baker who bakes it, and then there's the you know, truck driver who distributes it, and then there's the online website designer of which you ordered said bread, and all of those elements involved. Okay? The reality of vocation is serving God and serving people. And you'd be amazed how many places that applies to. You design video games for a living, you're manifestly recognizing the fact that God cares about leisure and pleasure. Can it be abused? Totally. But so can missionary work. If you're a graphic designer, or an interior decorator, or an architect, you're recognizing the reality that God cares about beauty, right? When he designs the world in Genesis 1 through 6, and it says over and over again, it is good, it is good, he's not just saying you know, um, it's good in some sort of unesthetic sense. He's effectively saying it's beautiful, as God designed it to. If you're a lawyer and you're serving humanity by fighting for justice, there is a God who cares about justice, and you're now in his employ. If you're a nurse, you have the God of healing, right? All of these things that pursue human flourishing are serving the Lord. Martin Luther, once again, was the one who brought this back to the understanding of the church, and he said, milkmaids are vocation just as much as the priests. This is one thing that he said that I think overcomes an oversimplification we make all the time. He said, to be a Christian shoemaker doesn't mean that you carve crosses in the sole of every shoe, but that you make very good shoes. But here's the reality, once again. To be with God, to do his work, to go into his mission field, you don't have to go at all. God has something for you today in this calling, in this assignment, in this job, with these relationships, in this culture, speaking this language, in this place that you now find yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but that is two things. One, it's surprisingly burdensome. Because now you recognize that God expects and requires of you much more than you would normally think of. And that showing up on Sunday or, or you know, doing some sort of event to serve the poor or these types of things, that that's not really what he's talking about. That that's only a part of the reality. And so it can be a little bit burdensome, but at the same time, it's tremendously freeing. Because the recognition is that what God has for you is right in front of your face. And it's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be easy. But the glory here that he's trying to get us here is probably summed up in another place when Jesus reminds us that with God, all things are possible. And what he says here is live your life with God. Don't come and live the God, you know, the God life. Live the life you're in right now with God. This really shouldn't be surprising to us when we remember when we remember what Jesus did when he came. The way that we assess life always comes down to status. 
And so it doesn't matter if it's worldly status and we go riches and power and upper echelon society, or if it's religious status and we go missionaries and the people who are really doing it and celibacy. Status is such a major component for life. But here's how Jesus viewed status according to the book of Philippians. He did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. All of the beauty and the value and the rights of being the God of the universe, it says he laid aside and made himself of no reputation and humbled himself, even becoming a slave and being obedient even to the point of death and not just any death, but the shaming and terrible death on a cross. If anything... If you look at Jesus' life and you say, I see that it's the hard life. I see that it's a scary life. And when he says, following me looks like death, I believe him because that's where he went. Even if you see that, you still, you still recognize the beauty there, don't you? You still recognize that the life that Jesus lived was an incredible destiny. And yet it denies every element of status that we've been told matters. He was poor, he was rejected, he was despised, he was hung with criminals to his left and his right and associated with them. He experienced all of these things and yet his life was greatly and fully both a manifestation of love for other people and the most glorifying and God-honoring and highest life ever to be lived. One that was so good and so great, it fulfilled all the requirements that God has. And so effectively, what Paul is saying here is wake up from your slumber and all of these dreams of what the good life looks like. Quit with the discontentment that says, I would be a better Christian if only. I could serve God more effectively if only. If I really want to be, then it has to wait until A, B, or C happens. Lay that aside and recognize, no, here, now, and you. Do you want to know how God saved you? By his might and his power and his wonder. That's all that's required. In your job, in your ministry, in your mission field, in your family. Let me say it again and we'll close. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Father, I want to just confess in my own heart the struggles of this passage are real. That I aspire to all of these status marks that have been created by the world, that have been created by religion, that I assess other people by these means, that I judge other people by the presence or the lack of particular external symbols or cultural manifestations. I want to confess that I too often feel like what you're calling as the good life and the life that you're calling us to live, a life glorifying to you, is something that can't happen in these circumstances with these people in this place. I want to ask your forgiveness for the discontentment in my heart and the foolishness that says, it's really the world that I'm in that hinders me. And everything would be fine. I'm totally capable with just a better hand being dealt. When in actuality, the God who truly knows 
the God who's truly wise, the God who's truly sovereign, and the God who's truly good. All these things that I'm not says, this is the hand I have for you. These are the works that I've laid before you, now walk in them. And I want to thank you, Lord. I want to thank you that you haven't made the Christian life or the righteous life or the good life so unattainable that anyone in these conditions of the wrong race or the wrong culture or the wrong job or the wrong relationships from the wrong family from the bad part of town, that you've removed all of those obstacles and said, hey, relax. I'm not asking you to come and find me. I'm not asking you to come where I am and do my work. I'm asking you to let me work in your life, through your life, in your circumstances. I pray that we would really take hold of the reality of vocation, that not only have you called us to yourselves, but you've called us in the circumstances we are in, and that's where the Christian life begins. I pray that we would measure that reality in obedience and not in externals that we would recognize the status that we feel disqualifies us has another side and both are true of us. We are completely unworthy and yet fully competent for the ministry you've called us to in you. That we would say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things and yet we are sufficient in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay aside any mark or foolish status to follow in your footsteps. We ask this in your name. Amen.